Good morning, and happy Father's Day. This is a, a day that we specifically honor our fathers and be thankful for their influence in our lives, and it's a, it's a good thing to do. I'm particularly thankful for my father who, even at this year at age 85, serves in his local church by preaching occasionally and, and by demonstrating a lifelong commitment to studying God's Word. Thank you to our worship team and all that have participated in the service so far, bringing us a theme of unity and love in the church. And this is uh, my message today as well. So today I have, a fa- I have a message for fathers from the book of Philippians. Actually, that's a bit misleading. I have a message for everyone. So, as you may remember, I've been preaching through the book of Philippians uh, over the past, I don't know, five or six years. And we've now come to the start of chapter 2. You will remember that joy is a major theme in this letter. Paul is writing to his favorite church from prison and is encouraging them to be joyful in their faith. He reminds them that although they are a Roman colony, their primary citizenship is in heaven and their joy should be in the Lord and in their salvation despite their trials and despite the persecution that they may endure. You will recall that he has explained to them how his imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel, because the whole imperial Roman guard has become aware of his reason, the reason for his confinement. He's been quite vocal about it. And also in the surrounding areas and around the region, Many other believers have become bolder and more courageous in speaking and in spreading the gospel when they see his example. Many have learned to speak the word without fear. And Paul rejoices in his situation and says that he cannot lose either way. To live is Christ, to die is gain, you'll remember. And in chapter 1, verse 27, he starts an important thought by exhorting them that they need to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's refresh our memory in that passage, Philippians 1, 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. 
we can see from a study of this passage that there's an underlying and an underlying encouragement and exhortation towards unity. We see it three times in verse 27. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. The need for unity is reinforced in verse 28 by the mention of their opponents. The verse 29, the message from verse 29 is that they will suffer for the sake of Christ individually and as a church body. And they will be engaged in the same type of conflict that Paul has. This is and was a political type conflict and persecution that Paul faced for preaching the gospel. The church needs to be united in the face of opposition, in the face of suffering, and in the face of persecution. We then come to to our passage under study for today, which is Philippians 2, 1-4. Let's continue reading. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray before we dive into this important passage. Would you pray with me? Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you today that we can come freely and worship you and look into your word. We pray that as we open your word, you would open our hearts. That where there is need for change, we would change. We pray for unity in the church, in the face of opposition in our society and in our country and around the world. We ask your Holy Spirit to be poured out on us this morning to work in our hearts, to encourage and exhort us. I pray for clarity of thought and of speech this morning. And I thank you again, in Jesus' name, amen. This passage at the start of Philippians 2 is often read as a whole, from verse 1 to verse 11, as a complete thought. And indeed, it is a complete thought. Um, but as I studied it, I found that there was a lot to include in one message. So I thought it would be better to break this into two messages. The, the second part is after lunch. No, I'm just kidding. It's whenever I'm up here again. And it builds on the first, and it contains some truth that deserves its own full attention. So we will examine verses 5 to 11 another day, although I will refer to them briefly in, to explain uh, how they fit together with the first four verses. 
Verse 1 now starts with a couple of two-letter words which are packed with meaning. And a good portion of my time was spent just trying to understand what those two words meant. They seem so simple upon superficial reading, but as one studies the passage, they are likely some of the most important words here. So let's begin. The first word in the ESV is so, so, if there is any encouragement. So is an inferential conjunction. And I didn't know what that was either. This is a word, a conjunction is a word that ties two thoughts together. And inferential means that, in this case, means in light of or in consequence of, as a consequence of what I've just said. So, in light of that, as a consequence of what he just said is what he's saying. It could be also replaced by the word therefore, which we're probably more familiar with. So, see I'm using, using it. So, what is Paul referring to? Now most commentators believe that he is referring to verses 27 to 30, the thought that just he developed just prior. With his exhortation to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, by standing in unity with each other in the face of suffering and persecution. That's his thought. And he's just told them that they will suffer for the sake of Christ. He's told them that it has been granted to them that they should suffer. Just as it has been granted to them that they should believe. Now in light of this fact, and in consequence, as a consequence of what he's just told them, Paul has something more to say. He wants to build on that. The word so reinforces the importance of what he has just said because it builds on it. He has just told them to live lives, worthy lives, for the sake of the gospel by standing together in the face of opposition. So that's what he develops. He's, he's pulling back, he's, he's building off of his first thought there. Then he continues with another two-letter word, if. Now this is a very important word because he hinges four conditions upon it. And at first glance, this might seem a risky way to build an argument, but the study of the word in the original context indicates it's what is called a first-class condition. And I didn't know what that meant either. But that means that the condition is true already. So there's not really a debate about it. It's uh, known by both parties to be true. The condition that follows is known to be true. So it's a little bit different than the way we use if today. So it may be also translated as since, which might help us better understand it. Since the following conditions are true, then something else is the case. 
And Paul will follow the conditions with the only imperative verb phrase in the sentence, complete my joy. So verses 1 to 4 is actually one complete sentence in the Greek. And complete my joy is the only imperative verb. So, that's the grammar lesson, apparently. That's about as far as I get. First class condition, it's known to be true. So these conditions are known to be true by the reader and by the writer. So, he's going to build off those four conditions to then command them to do something. So let's look at those four conditions which they all agree to be true. And we will know as well when we read them that they are indeed true. Number one. Since there is any encouragement in Christ. So we need to look at what does encourage or encouragement mean and what does he mean by in Christ. There's two important things there. So what does encourage mean? To encourage means to inspire with courage, with spirit, and with hope. When you encourage someone, you inspire them with the courage to move on, to do something that is hard for them, or simply to uplift their spirit. It's often useful to see how it's used in other passages in the Bible. So I'll refer quickly to a few other verses. 1 Timothy 5.1 states, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as sisters, younger women as, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And from Hebrews 10.24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're inspiring people and encouraging them to meet together and to come together and to, be, to uplift their spirits. 2 Thessalonians 3.11 For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. That verse tells us to encourage people to quit being busy bodies, and to get to work. It's encouraging them to do something. So it's important to note that the encouragement is stated to be in Christ, is what our verse says. If there is, or since there is, any encouragement in Christ. For the encouragement to be in Christ, it means that our appeal to others to uplift and motivate them is based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. The assurance of Christ's completed work of salvation 
for our salvation should be a great encouragement to all who have been saved. We do not rest or rely on our own works. We rest on the work of Christ. So we can encourage others in Christ based on Christ's work on our behalf. So you can see that the if here is a sure thing. It is not something that we are unsure about. We can truly say, since there is encouragement in Christ. We know it to be true. We know Christ's work on the cross to be true. This is the basis of our faith. So this brings us to Paul's second condition. Since there is any comfort from love. Comfort here refers to reassurance with an element of encouragement, often spurring to action. Comfort often implies sustenance and support, a strengthening, a solace, a consolation in trouble. Comfort. The book of Psalms is a good place to go if you're going to look for a verse about comfort. Psalm 94, 19. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Same word, consolations, comfort. My soul is comforted by God when my cares are many. Psalm 23, of course, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of, shadow, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They console me, they strengthen me, they support me, they encourage me, they spur me to action. Surely, there is comfort or consolation from the love of God in times of distress and trouble. I think we know this from experience, unless you've never had any distress or trouble, but I haven't met someone yet. So we've all had distress and trouble, and we've all hopefully relied on God in those times to give us comfort. Paul and the Philippian church knew this as well. Paul was sitting in prison. And he was comforted and encouraged by God and his love in those times. So, let's move on to condition number three. We know there's encouragement in Christ. We know there's comfort in God's love. Condition number three, since there is any participation in the Spirit. First, there's it's important to recognize the context and the structure that would confirm that the Spirit here would be the Holy Spirit, not just the human Spirit. But we have a context, we have a, a Trinitarian context here in the, in the verse where we talk about Christ's encouragement, the love of God, and participation of the Spirit. 
This is the Holy Spirit. What does participation mean? It's kind of an odd word uh, that we, we, we would use now in, in a different way a little bit. But if you recognize uh, any Greek terms at all, you'll probably recognize this one, and that's koinonia. And we will immediately recognize that as meaning fellowship. It has the element of the sharing of resources and ultimately means a shared conviction that manifests itself as a mutual responsibility and mutual status. Fellowship. Fellowship in the Spirit. It's variously translated in the New Testament, koinonia is, as fellowship, communion, sharing, or participation. So we're familiar with some other usages. Koinonia is only translated as participation in two other instances, both in the same verse, and you'll remember it from verse 1 Corinthians 10.16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Participation here is communion with Christ and with other believers in and through the blood and body of Christ. The term, the same phrase, participation in the Spirit, is also translated fellowship in the Spirit in the closing sentences of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So again, we have a Trinitarian context there, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In the same way that Paul, Paul also appeals to the Trinity in these verses in Philippians, the encouragement in Christ, the love of God, and the participation or fellowship in the Spirit. We've sung of it this morning, there's one Spirit and one church body. So all believers share in, partake in, and have fellowship in one Holy Spirit. Paul and his readers are aware of the fact of the indwelling of the Spirit in all true believers. He states this clearly, in another letter about unity, about the unity in the one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This participation in or fellowship in the Holy Spirit is a known truth to Paul and his readers as well as us today, if we have experienced the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound together by the Spirit. We have fellowship in the Spirit. So this brings us to our fourth condition. We know we have encouragement in Christ. We know we have comfort from love. We have 
participation or fellowship in the Spirit. Fourthly, since there is any affection and sympathy. This is Paul's fourth and final condition or basis for his appeal. All three prior conditions we have seen are known truths that have no element of doubt for either Paul or his readers or even for us today. We know there is encouragement in Christ. We know there is comfort in the love of God and we know that there is participation or fellowship in the Spirit. So what about affection and sympathy? What is affection? Affection is defined as a deep feeling, empathy or compassion that comes from the inward parts. Literally, the bowels. The Greek word is splenkron. And just a fun fact of the day, as it was in vet school many years ago, we learned the term for the circulation of the gut, or the intestines, it's called the splanchnic circulation. So I was refreshed my anatomy uh, terminology. It comes from the Greek splanchnic, or the splanchnon, the bowels, is affection. This is the father, this is the natural love that a father has for his children on Father's Day. Affection deep-seated empathy, compassion. And Paul has used this term in a previous section of the letter already. If we turn back to uh, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul had the same deep-seated compassion for the Philippian church that Christ had. The same love, the same level of love that Christ displayed on the cross. It's a deep-seated compassion. What does Paul mean by sympathy? Sympathy here refers and has elements of care, compassion, and concern. There's a significant component of mercy as well. In context, it is the tender mercy and compassion of God that Paul is referring to. Specifically, regarding their salvation. This morning, God chose us. Well done. All who have been saved will know that they have been recipients of God's tender mercy to save them from their own sin and eternal suffering under the wrath of God. Sympathy has a component of mercy. The compassion and mercy, the affection and sympathy of God are definite truths that Paul can rely on in his appeal to the church. Today we know these are true and reliable as well. And we should meditate daily on the mercy of God in our lives. A God that reached down and chose us and saved us. So those are the conditions, and they're all true. There's no debate. Since these are true, 
Therefore, since all these four things are true, Paul then moves on to his imperative verb, his command or charge to do something. It's based on these four conditions, which we know are indisputable. Paul has firmly grounded his upcoming request in four rock-solid pillars of truth. What then is his primary charge to the church? The charge is found at the beginning of verse 2. Complete my joy. So what could this possibly mean? Isn't Paul's joy complete already? Isn't Paul's joy based on the work of Christ on the cross? How could someone else complete his joy? Paul demonstrates throughout this letter that true joy is found in the Lord. It is, of course, as per Galatians 5, 6.22, a work or fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace. All true believers are to demonstrate and enjoy the joy of the Lord. Joy is unrelated to external circumstances, as Paul's life of suffering and persecution demonstrates. Paul stated in 1 verse 4 of this book that he prays for the church with joy. But there's an indication in chapter 4, verse 1, that others can be your joy as well. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord. This is an intensely personal letter. Paul knows them well. They are his joy and his crown. He loves them immensely. We experience this as parents when a child is captured by the saving grace of Jesus and lives a life worthy of the gospel. That brings our joy to the brim and overflowing. Now, a beautiful granddaughter has also been known to complete the joy of proud grandparents. Am I right? Not that there can't be more joy added later, of course. Completing one's joy is a filling up of joy. But there really isn't a point where more joy can't be added. The joy is based on God's grace and His love and His goodness to us and, our, and it complements our joy in the Lord. Our joy in the faithfulness of God through others is really just adding to our joy in the Lord. It complements it. It completes it, fills it up and overflowing. This is Paul's request. He wants them to complete his joy, to make his joy overflowing. Because that joy is really in the Lord through their obedience. But he's using this request to complete his joy to actually get to the main point of getting them to do what he really wants them to do. So he has to define what would complete his joy. 
What are the practical things that would complete his joy? And this is what he's really getting at in this letter is, is to exhort them to move on to do something. And because of his personal relationship with them, he knows that they would want to please him to complete his joy. And he knows that it would be good for them in the Lord to do these things and good for the church. So what are the practical things that would lead to his joy being complete? We know this, there is something coming because he uses the word by next. That's the third important two-letter word today, if you're counting. I don't have really many points, but... And he follows it by, being, by following it with a fourfold request for unity. Or, as we have learned recently from Pastor Jim, oneness, more correctly. Let's examine these four in order. So we're at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. The same mind. This is more than simply agreeing on something. The context of this and the meaning of this is having a uniform direction, a common mind, unity of thought and of will. It involves the whole person. It is agreeing and having the same purpose and then moving together to achieve a single goal. We're all moving together. It involves the intellect and the will of each member of the group to move in unison together. That's what same mind means. What is the same mind that he refers to? I think the answer is revealed in the next couple of verses. And I'll develop this later, but let's just look ahead just briefly. Verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I kind of get there because of verse 5. He says, uses the word mind again and has, says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes to develop the concept of humility in Christ as our ultimate example of humility. And that which enables us to serve others. So I think, and there might be some debate about this, but... In context, I, I think the same mind that he refers to is the complete dedication to humility through Christ. We'll develop that a bit later. Let's get back to the next way we are to complete Paul's joy. Complete my joy by having the same love. What is the same love that they all share? Well, it's the love of Christ that they have all received. And when we examine this in context, 
That should be the same love that they demonstrate to each other. This is agape love, completely unconditional love. Paul wants them to display Christ's love to each other in absolute humility. We've sung of this this morning. They'll know we are Christians by our love. It's true. Complete my joy. Number three, complete my joy by being in full accord. This isn't a term we use frequently, I don't think. Being in full accord means that their very souls, the innermost parts of their being, are in full harmony with each other. This can only happen through the Holy Spirit. And in the unity of the Spirit, in the fellowship of the Spirit, and it can only happen when we give up our interests and look to the interests of others. What would it look like if our church was in full accord at all times, if we were in full harmony? Complete my joy, number four, by being of one mind. Now, I think this is a reinforcing statement from the first request, by being of the same mind, it has a little bit different meaning. It's not only the same mind, that has a directional element, but it is one mind. And it reinforces the singular purpose of the church. And that unity is achieved by agreeing on that purpose, by being of one mind. We're together on it. So these four things are the means by which Paul's joy is going to overflow. When he hears of the church and is confirmed that they are moving together in one direction, with one love, with souls united in one purpose, his cup of joy in the Lord will run over. So, how are these things accomplished? He doesn't leave us hanging here. How do we achieve this level of oneness or unity in the church? How can we move as one together? We don't have to go very far. Paul answers these practical questions on how we can live out his four requests in the next two verses. We've read them already. Let's review them again. Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul now gives some very specific instructions on about how to achieve unity in the church, the unity that will give him great joy, and will bring much glory to God. He states this first in a negative command, what not to do, and then in a positive command for reinforcement. Well, let's look at his first instruction. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Or alternatively, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Selfish ambition is self-explanatory. It refers to seeking good for oneself as one looks to accomplish his own goals and desires at the expense of others. 
There's an aspect of rivalry and hostility involved as the only purpose is to further your own self-interest. You only need to observe young children at play to see this is a natural behavior in sinful man. One of the first words that a child utters is, Mine! This is the definition of selfish ambition. Mine! Paul has used this term already in this letter. In verses 15 to 17 of chapter 1, when he's talking about other preachers, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy. Envy. I just combined those words. Envy. Envy and rivalry, or selfish ambition. But others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. James also refers to selfish ambition directly in his letter to the churches as he reminds them how to live peaceful and God-honoring lives. If we look to James 3, verse 13 and following, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Selfish ambition is defined as earthly, demonic, spiritual, unspiritual, and the root of disorder and the root of every vile practice. Allowing the passions within to control our behavior causes quarrels and fights and massive disunity. Do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition or conceit. What is conceit? Conceit is defined as pride without proper basis. An elevated and unsubstantiated view of one's own worth. A person is conceited if he thinks that he is so much better than anyone else, but in fact no one else thinks that he is better than anyone else. Perhaps he is better at something, but he just lords it over everyone else and takes much pride in his position. Interestingly, this is the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament, and its root meaning has elements of emptiness in it, empty conceit. There's nothing behind it. There's nothing to substantiate the pride. Rivalry, selfish ambition, empty conceit are not to be motivators of anything that we do. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Paul then turns to his positive commands. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
Here, I believe, is the key word to understanding our passage and to achieving peace and unity. Humility. What is humility? I think we need to understand it before we can model it. Humility is always held in contrast to pride or arrogance. We know from context, context here that humility is contrasted to selfish ambition or conceit. Let's look at a few other passages to gain a fuller understanding. From Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as God has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And let whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Put on humility. We can already see here that they are one of the essential features of a united and peaceful church is humility, rooted in the love of God with a desire to live worthy of the gospel. We are reminded in 1 Peter that we are to be clothed with humility. Humility should be the first characteristic that another person observes in our lives. 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We observe here again the distinct contrast to pride. Paul, in our passage in Philippians, then goes, goes on to give a good working definition of humility. What does this look like in real life? He gives two ways with inescapable clarity. Number one, count others more significant than yourselves. To count here means to reckon, to consider, or to regard. We are familiar with the phrase, count the cost. Paul uses the phrase, count everything as lost for the sake of Christ, later in this letter. James says, to count it all joy when you meet various kinds of trials. So we're to consider, to reckon, to regard others more significant than ourselves. More significant here means surpassing in value or better than. Now the clearest definition of this phrase came from a commentary I read that stated that when we count others more significant than ourselves, this is not in our estimation of them as better than, but in our caring for them. The needs of others are more significant than our needs. The needs of others are more significant than our needs. That's what that means. We are all equally valued by God, but in humility, we are to regard the needs of others as more significant or more important to our needs. We're going to step on some toes here. 
Sorry to the self-care, me time, take care of yourself so you can take care of others, secular psychology. It's not biblical. This message is countercultural. It's blatantly countercultural. This is against everything we learn on the internet. The definition is reinforced in Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is that we bear one another's burdens. Do you see how it works? If we each bear one another's burdens, all of our burdens are collectively carried, including our own. But we must act with one mind, with one heart, in full accord for this to work. We can't hire pastors to bear the burdens of everybody in the church. That would be easy. Well, for us, it wouldn't be easy for the pastors. It would be impossible. We can't do it without the work of the Holy Spirit and without full submission to our Savior. By our own strength and in our natural state, this is impossible. Before we get to the answer about how this is possible, let's look at Paul's second clarification of what humility is. In verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now this is the most, perhaps the most clear definition of humility that I can find. Look means to notice carefully. Watch out for it. Be concerned about Keep thinking about it. It is not stating that we aren't to look after ourselves. It assumes that we will. This is the natural state. It is good and righteous and God-honoring to have a self-interest in, in our health of our mind and our soul and our body, but we must not stop there. We must not have a selfish preoccupation with our own affairs. We are to look also to the interests of others. We are familiar with a verse from 1 Corinthians 10.24 that says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. To seek, to seek the good of your neighbor. States it more strongly than simply to watch out for. To seek out, to search for ways that we can bless our brother or sister with good. This is an active process, it's not a passive process. This is not a call me if you need anything type of situation. This is actively finding out what that person needs and then doing all that you can to help. We're seeking out the good of others. The message is clear. The message is countercultural. The message is uniquely Christian. Unity is achieved by humility. Humility is regarding the interests and well being and needs of others as more important than your own. How do we get there? Can we simply try harder? Can we make to-do lists do one nice thing each day? Can we force ourselves to maybe do good twice a day? This is the heart of the issue. I believe that Paul goes on in verses 5 to 11 to demonstrate Christ as the ultimate example of humility. Christ gave his own life for us. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus 
We can't achieve true humility in our lives unless our hearts are radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be overwhelmed by the fact that we have received the love of Christ. That Christ himself came from glory in heaven, humbled himself to become a man, lived a sinless life, and died a death on our behalf to save us from the wrath to come to the glory of God the Father. I found the following quote quite helpful from a commentary by Dennis E. Johnson. How then can we fail to respond to such divinely imparted encouragement, comfort, love, and companionship? How can we refuse to lay down our selfish ambition and vain conceit, our hurt feelings and competitive urges? Having received such love, let us beg our Savior to turn our hearts inside out to treasure others as more important than ourselves, to care about their needs more than we care about ourselves, to fight for unity by cultivating the humility that we see in Jesus, the King who stooped to serve us. How can we fail to respond? If you are a believer here this morning, would you allow your heart to be overwhelmed by a knowledge of your Savior's love for you. Would you glory in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death for you? We need to meditate, meditate on the gospel daily and hourly. When we are faced with a choice of serving our own interests or serving someone else's interests, we need to remember what Christ did for us. He gave up everything for us. Can we not give up a few minutes or an hour of our time for someone else? Can we slow down the game a little? Listen and watch and seek out another's good. We're a busy society. We need to slow down. We need to seek out others' good. We need to put our interests at bay. If, on the other hand, if you have not been captured by the love of Christ, would you submit to him today? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I urge you to repent of your sins and call upon the name of Jesus this morning to receive forgiveness and to receive eternal life. This is Father's Day. Let us first be captured by the love of our Father in heaven by the encouragement and hope that we have in Christ and by the fellowship that we share in the Spirit. To the fathers who are listening, may you be marked by humility as you lead your family in service to our King. May you intentionally seek out the best interests of your wife and your children each day. May you spend time in daily devotion and prayer so that your heart is transformed daily by a deep and abiding knowledge of the love of Jesus for you. May you be blessed richly by a life of humility and service to others. To the church, 
May we complete the joy of our pastors and elders by serving each other in humility. Paul is a senior pastor, basically, to this church. And he's telling them what would complete his joy. I know this would complete the joy of our pastors and elders, serving each other in humility. May we achieve a greater level of humility in our lives by gaining a deeper appreciation of Christ's sacrificial love for us. May we know it, meditate on it, be thankful for it, and allow it to transform our lives each day. May our church be marked by unity that stems from humility as each of us is transformed by a preoccupation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Spirit which transforms our heart. We pray that we will daily gain a greater appreciation of your love for us so that we can serve others in humility and in love. May we be marked by love and humility in our lives. May we submit to your will. May we draw close to you each day and gain a greater appreciation of the gospel, the truth of your word. And may that transform our lives each day, each choice that we make. May we put the interests of others ahead of our own interests. We ask for your help. We cannot do this on our own. We ask for your spirit to transform us in small ways and in big ways. We thank you that you will do it if we are faithful, if we dedicate ourselves and devote ourselves to you in obedience. You will transform our lives. And we thank you for that. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand for a closing benediction from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen.